Answers dedicated to the Baja Men. In honor of Clifford the Big Red Dog, what's your favorite cinematic dog moment? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with George the Dog who hides dinosaur bones and causes crazy shit to happen in Bringing Up Baby. I'm Matt Patches. I'm also going with a classic film with a classic dance sequence. It's Marmaduke doing Dance Dance Revolution in the Marmaduke movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all saw hey, it's that. Hey, it's me, David the... Yeah, yeah, everybody saw the Marmaduke movie. It's a modern classic. Uh, hey, it's me, David the Seven, and I'm going to go with uh, the time in the mask that the dog is wearing the mask and he pees on people. Maybe that's recency bias from our last quarter quell, but uh, full on, we full on see him pee on people. He also has a big that's smile. Him. He does. He enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm David Ehrlich, and you know, Dave just stole my answer. Uh, so... I don't know what to say, but maybe I'll go in the other direction from the classic picks and pick a movie that's not out yet. Is that too obnoxious? Who cares? That's sort of my brand here. Always. Uh, I will go with the dog in Panah. Panahi's forthcoming one for the... Uh, hit the road. Hit the road, it's called. Uh, this is the most on-brand David answer. Whatever. Of course. <laughs> Mostly because I... I don't know. I was just completely flummoxed. I, I, all the dogs were canceling each other out in my, in my head. Cancel culture. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Can I go with... With Babe. Not a dog, no. but there thinks are, he is. Well, but you have to at least go with Fly or... Uh, yeah, there are dogs the, in the, the, What's the boy? Rex? Is the man dog's name Rex? I right? don't know. Yeah. No, um, anyway, when Panapanai's one uh, Hit the Road comes out early next year, see it. You will, you will have a voice in the back of your mind. It'll be this nasal sort of garbage you're hearing right now. We'll say to you, there's a hell of a dog, dog in the movie. And you will see that movie, and you will be like, you know what? That guy with the bad voice in the podcast is right. That is one hell of a dog. <sighs> Can't believe we didn't save this for Power of the Dog. It's out. No dogs in Power of the Dog. I was about to say, is there's that a dog? There's probably a dog in there somewhere, Metaphor? but not, a real, not an important dog. There's no dogs on that ranch? Who's no. the powerful dog, then? Then you gotta see it to find out. No spoilers yeah. patches. They, they do make it clear, but the, there is no dog in the movie. As far as You're the dog now, man. <laughs> Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 373. It's pandemic 86. It's the week of Wednesday, November 10th. That's the day that in 1969, Sesame Street debuted on PBS. Nice. And then 51, 52 years later, Big Bird would get vaccinated and cause some people to freak the fuck out. So good work, uh-huh. Sesame Street. Really, puppet vaccinations was the most pressing thing our government had to deal with the past couple of weeks. <laughs> the government didn't vaccinate Big Bird. Big Bird is a fictional character owned by the children. No, not the children, uh, public broadcasting. Network. He's owned by the children, too. The he's, a, he's, a, he's a government employee. Of course he's vaccinated. <laughs> and Elmo's not vaccinated because he's not old enough. Jesus Christ, everybody. <laughs> no, yeah. no, the ages. They do have up. canonical ages. I mean, Big Bird is six. No, they absolutely do. During yes. during daylight yeah. savings time, uh, when my daughter got up at five thirty in the morning, I watched mm-hmm. the uh, Ken Quapis film "Follow That Bird." Have you ever seen "Follow That Bird"? The oh, the Sesame yeah. Street movie mm-hmm. where uh, Big Bird gets placed in, in a dodo bird family and then escapes. Yeah, and, and runs then he back. winds up singing at like a burlesque club or something. It's it's yeah, it's it's like Pee Wee's uh, Big Adventure esque, or I guess Muppet movies <laughs> might be the better comparison. But he does it, it canonically 
six years old when he's on the run from uh, a bunch of SCTV <laughs> alumni who want to put him in a circus. Sad, scary. Uh well, while we're off on a tangent, before I throw to reviews, I did want to promote the quarter quell coming up uh, oh, wow. at the beginning of the show, so hopefully more people hear it, because we've planned it. We got our shit together. We're going to watch... <laughs> now, now just to execute that plan. Now with yeah, planning. Okay. <laughs> I've watched half of these movies we're going to talk about. Shit. We are throwing it back to the early days of the podcast, because our 10th anniversary was last year, but we missed it, so we're doing it this year. <laughs> uh, and, now that's planning. And and most of the movies we want to talk about came out in 2011 anyway, because the show started at the end of 2010. So if you would like to watch along with us, we'll be discussing 127 Hours, the original Operation Kino <laughs> argument movie, Limitless, Super 8, and Water for Elephants. And uh, you can decide which of those we <laughs> think or is a trend. I will be calling it, you know, t- despite my, my better knowledge, uh, pretty much every time it comes up in that episode, like Water for Elephants. Mm. And Dave will call it Murder for Elephants. Murder for mm. Elephants. No one will ever know the real title. Uh, yeah, watch along with us. It's it's going to be fun. That will be out in two weeks, the week of Thanksgiving. So you have time to prepare now. I like how we were ahead of the podcasting trend for the most part, and then did nothing with it. I mean, Dave did on his own, but you mean <laughs> yeah, we were we were in on the ground floor, and then just stayed on the ground floor comfortably enjoying ourselves. <laughs> we get to we get to wave at everybody as they pass us by. We got to yeah. see everybody go. Someone has to, to greet people they when they come show, into the building to. to get on the elevator <laughs> to go above the ground floor. You know, it was rent controlled here. We didn't want to move. <laughs> <laughs> we got evicted one. Uh, that's true. yeah. Reviews. Um, we we got two. Yeah, we got two reviews, reviews, Katie. We Yay. got two reviews. Oh, uh, so much Galaxy of Heroes going on. Discuss. I, I know there's there's so much that the people don't want to hear us talk about about Galaxy of Heroes. Nope. Um, but we have two. One is short. One is long. Let's get into it. Lateralis, twelve five zero one. Shout out to all the Tool fans. Black in the house. and Not white I, are I, I do know all that I see. <laughs> yeah, Dave is definitely the Tool fan of the of the podcast. There is no doubt in my mind. For sure. Um, I think he's. I've actually seen him wearing Tool apparel at some point. So mm-hmm. check out Dave. Yeah, yeah. See, it's funny because it just says Tool on it. Yeah, that's the joke mm-hmm. of the band. Um, it's, it's pretty great. Anyway, Lateralis12501 says, no Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, please. I think I've reviewed <laughs> before, but I don't want to hear about Star Wars in any form. I love this show. Wow. The coverage of pop culture topics is always entertaining, but I thoroughly enjoy the random sidebar conversations. Like when the white guy from IndieWire recalled traumatic summer camp experiences and an inexplicably anti-Semitic country club in Connecticut. Keep up the good work. Now... Question about this: Is the white guy from IndieWire is that a reference to the classic film Malcolm and Marie? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, um, it's fun. It's very funny. I would hope so. I mean, that's that's certainly when yeah, I heard those combination of words before. Come out this um, year. That movie. That movie came out this February. Year. It did indeed, uh, but it qualified yeah. for this year's Oscars because this year's weird, right? It was positioned it for this. For Zendaya was uh, yeah. was a leading. My and God. a gold derby probably had her like number one. You know, this for that movie this year feels longer than I realized. Anyway, yep. Um, well, uh, yeah, that was uh, I. I remember my traumatic summer camp experiences and that anti-Semitic country club. Um, inexplicable. I mean, in the way that anti-Semitism is always inexplicable, but was not unpredictable given the area of Connecticut where my family lived. But anyway, um, thank you. Very helpful review. We will not be talking about Star Wars in any form on this episode. I think I want to promise. I'm not sure if I can. 
Ellen S2000 says, protecting Katie and myself. Love the podcast. Mm-hmm. Again, I think a reference to our incredibly effective Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes strategy. Actually wow, took the time. Review too. Oh, no, she did. I thought, I thought that was just the entire review. That she no. was protecting me and herself and then moving on. Oh, no. I mean, who knows what this review uh, contains. It's quite an, an, uh, an opus that we have here. Actually took the time to download the Apple Podcast app in order to write this review. So please take that as a token of my appreciation. Or rather, of my desire to not listen to Star Wars mobile game talk for me and Katie's sake. I'm going to take mm-hmm. it as both, LNS2000, uh, a name that sounds like the brand of a robot that was made in, like, 1955. Listening to this podcast has been one of the few con- constants of the pandemic, and I can't express how much it has helped me. It's great to know as a college-aged, budding media studies major that other people care as much as I do about dorky media and pop culture. Getting snippets of information about all these cool films and TV shows is an awesome way for me to think about the media world as a whole and the diversity of opinion that is possible within it. I also love the bickering, since it reminds me of my friends and I when we talk about subjects we're passionate about. I appreciate all of your views, even David's, whose stubborn nature is one I may personally resonate with. You guys make me excited to continue to learn and maybe, just maybe, enter the world myself. I would take the podcast with me on my silly little government-mandated walks when I was stuck in New York City, and then later when I was hiding out on the Oregon coast. It's done a great job of distracting me from our crumbling society. And I'm sure some old retirees in my small Oregon neighborhood looked at me funny when I cackled out of nowhere as we crossed paths. Speaking of neighborhoods, I'm actually from the UWS, which as we New Yorkers know is a reference to the uh, building from Murders, Only Murders (laughs) in the Building itself. Yeah, she's where she lives in the Upper West Side. (laughs) So actually, wait, so I'm getting ahead of myself. So she's from the Upper West Side. So hearing you guys talk about Only Murders in the Building was quite funny. You preempted I have, in fact, been near Zabar's, as Katie brought up. Uh, yeah, I saw the exterior shots being filmed. Oh my God. And the, I was just thinking about wow. this, how conspicuous that production must have been, especially during COVID. It, it must have really been unmissable. Um, and speaking of, uh, right, sorry. I saw the exteriors being filmed. The bright lights and noise frequently disturbed my evening. I had been hesitant to watch because I was worried it would misrepresent the place where I grew up and lean into stereotypes. It always makes me feel strange to see my neighborhood on TV, which is unfortunate considering. Also, I've resented how much hype that building, the Bell Nord, which sounds like the villain from Final Fantasy VIII, got when there are one of them, the Norg under, anyway, and this is my rant, not Ellen. I was about to say, this is not part of the movie, right? Just to be clear. (laughs) When there are so many other beautiful older buildings around. But you guys have convinced me to at least try it, because it seems easily watchable and sweet, and you were all able to agree on it, which is rare. Plus, if it feels like 30 Rock, I'm sold because 30 Rock is my lifeblood. So thanks for changing my mind. Apologies for the length of this review. No apologies necessary, Ellen. But I have a lot of thoughts about the podcast, and we love hearing them. Keep doing what you do, and right back at you, Ellen. Thanks for your review. Um, Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if anyone else in this podcast also lived on the UWS at one point, but I went to college up there. I was born on the UES, which is way Mm. less fun. But uh, Ellen, you're going to have to leave us... You'll have to leave us another review when West Side Story comes out. See if they get your neighborhood right. <laughs> of course, the Upper West Side has not changed at all since uh, the 1950s. So, I hope that she enjoyed the amount of 30 Rock they filmed on the Upper West Side. Because when I lived there in the early seasons of 30 Rock, and I always recognized like, parts of Central Park and the McDonald's were, were uh, 
Uh, Alec Baldwin and Selma Hayek had their McFlurries was like at 79th and Broadway. So oh, lots yeah. of Upper West Side there. Still operating. Yeah, it was between McDonald's. the Upper West Side and Queens. <laughs> Avenue yeah, X. Yeah, I, ne- I never lived above 14th Street. You sellouts <laughs> with your pleasant surroundings <laughs> and your own on York existence. Avenue all the way on the east side. That's like Yeah, I was in uh, uh, I was in the neighborhood between Morningside Heights and the Upper West Side that didn't really have a name. I was in Morningside <laughs> Heights, which was called Morningside <laughs> Heights. Uh, and then I left and Kim's closed along with all the good restaurants. Very oh. sad. The neighborhood was mourning my absence. Um, anyway, if you would like to listen to these lovely reviews from our listeners, rather than hear us prattle on about the mobile gotcha game Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, and who wouldn't, please go on iTunes, Finding the War Room, leave us a review. We will clearly read it live, unfiltered, on the show. Good time for all. Check it out. Ciao, etc. <laughs> Okay, later in this show, we're going to talk about a gigantic Marvel movie. So to start the show, we're going to talk about what might be the exact opposite of a gigantic Marvel movie. This will maybe, well, maybe someone does not agree and we will debate this fact. But uh, we're going to talk about a new movie called The Beta Test. This is from directors Jim Cummings and PJ McCabe. It is a Hollywood satire. It is a weird little thriller. It is... Definitely shot on a shoestring budget, but I think the things you can do with a shoestring budget are pretty miraculous these days. The movie is shiny and spiffy and shot around L.A. And I, I wanted to talk about this movie partially because the beta test, it's, it's I want to get into the plot and we'll talk about the story and we'll talk about the performances. I'm fascinated by Jim Cummings as a extremely online uh, indie filmmaker, someone who seems to spend as much time like making movies and going about his business uh, like equal parts advocate for indie filmmaking he's just out there talking about making movies and and talking about kind of pushing against the system that we've constructed for ourselves here um by indulging giant franchises and and watching theatrical kind of dwindle into a a, a certain sect of movies uh every month um and then there's Jim who somehow he made a huge splash at Sundance I want to say in like 2016 with a short film called Thunder Road, which was basically him up on a stage giving a eulogy as a cop. Um, and it made a huge, huge splash at the festival. Um, there were a lot of actors on the the jury that year, if I recall. Uh, Key, Keening, Michael Key was on the end, like fell in love with Jim Cummings and this performance, this monologue that he delivered in the short film. And he got a chance to turn Thunder Road into another little indie from a few years ago, which was really fun. Um, and he's gone on to make, I want to say he's directed two other movies, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which is more of a horror thing, and then The Beta Test, which just came out this week. Um, I, is it, Dave, did you rent this movie? Is this out on VOD right away? Probably. I would it is that. on VOD right away, yes. Okay. Um, and so The Beta Test stars Jim Cummings as Jordan, this Hollywood agent. They are kind of going through what Hollywood went through. I mean, they must have written this possibly during the pandemic and then kind of shot it all last year because it's dealing with the agent and the WGA. I, I would I, I believe call it a that crisis, it was but... actually, it was actually shot uh, ahead of the pandemic and they were in post. Oh, wow. Okay. Good to know. But yeah, so right before the pandemic, you know, the agents and the WGA were clashing and the, the WGA rejected 
the agents and there was a whole just industry thing that trying to unpack it here would be a fool's errand. Um, it was, has since been resolved, but I think there were a lot of questions of what like agents, what purpose. They it's served. a satire about how you should fire your agent. And there's call yeah. my agent in France and this is fire my agent fire uh, my in agent. America. And Good it's point. surreal and trippy. I mean, the premise of the movie just laid out is that, yeah. um, I mean, it starts with a gruesome murder that it seems unrelated to the main plot for a while, but really it's about this agent, it's played by Jim Cummings, who gets uh, a letter in the mail on purple stationery that, pro- and he's about to be married, he's engaged, and the letter label. promises um, completely anonymous, no strings attached sex with an admirer who he can meet in a hotel room. He doesn't know who it is. Yeah, he gets a select like. a la carte based on the invitation. Like right, he win, does. Win, he, win, selects, uh, he double checks face sitting or something. Or like, yes, uh, he's yeah. into the face sitting. <laughs> but like, it's strange because he, you would think that the, the what they're into and going to be participating would have to line up with the partner that's been selected for them, but I guess it's still a buffet um, yeah. that he can choose from. Uh, but he goes, and the, the real sort of interesting twist of the premise is not whether or not he's going to go, um, or that he goes and weird things happen. What happens in the first act of the movie is that he goes and he has the time of his life. Um, it is sort of this unambiguously hot, mutually satisfying connection. And so now he goes back home and is going to be tormented for the rest of his life uh, with the idea that there could be, not that he, he doesn't have any idea who this person he had sex with in the hotel room was and neither does she they're both blindfolded even though they're both the room alone in rooms with blindfolds you would think that the human compulsion to identify the other person would take over but whatever it's the movies baby um and so he knows that this other person's out there and at that point things get a little lynchian and the butter slides off the knife and he starts falling a little bit deeper into a conspiracy about who is behind these letters uh, and trying to keep his very underwritten wife or wife to be at bay and um and also land a huge deal that will keep the agency in business right there's a lot of high pressure tension there yeah it is i mean despite my my sort of backhanded comments there about some of the elements of the movie it it is really self-possessed and interesting what it's doing it is wild to see such a um sort of fervid satire that takes very specific shots at things like wga packaging and um <laughs> and things of that nature it's fun yeah, to watch i mean it goes by it 90 minutes long it, it's got it's got a great vibe to it so that's what i like about jim cummings movies and ultimately i think the, the plot here might be kind of flimsy but he is trying to create an actor showcase for himself very often i think he knows what his strong suits are as a performer and this is like him doing Jim Carrey and Liar Liar, but also I feel like Jim Carrey vibes are really strong in his performance. But it it was in Thunder Road too, and it's interesting. It's that squished with uh, American Psycho, which is like the other half of that. I also think he saw Jerry Maguire and was like, "What if this? What if the power scenes in Jerry Maguire were the whole movie? What if I could just give monologues and like give all the pepper scenes?" Um, I, he loves the the big acting. He's trying to find See, that sounds scenarios. Bad when you say it like that, I don't know. Like he wants to give the he wants to give the mantra speech from the beginning of Jerry Maguire, like over and over again. There's never a point <laughs> in the movie where you're really like anchored to his character. You're like, oh yeah, I hope he makes it out. Like the entire time, as he's like digging himself in deeper to this situation, 
he might be solving, you know, a mystery or he might just be being an idiot. And it's uh, the performance, I think, is able to walk that line and, where and it's without, like watchable and not being annoying. And without, I mean, it is, it, it reminded me a lot. I don't know if this reference, 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 I don't know if this uh, reference is going to do anything for anyone out there, but his performance, in addition to Jim Carrey and um, Patrick Bateman, reminded me of Ryan Serhant from uh, Million Dollar Listing New York. Uh, wow! And also wow. from a scene in Noah Baumbach's, uh, um, I think it's in While We're Young. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, that the energy is all over the place. It's a very precise, mannered performance that is this tightly coiled manic energy, um, and it's fun to watch. And then it gets you know the other point of reference that jumped out of me watching it was actually Under the Silver Lake, uh, in terms sure. of how mm. the conspiracy sort of tags him along and the question of whether or not he's chasing something real or just chasing his own tail. Um, it, it is even less satisfyingly fleshed out here than it was in that movie, I would say, but um, it's also not entirely what the movie has on its mind. It's trying to serve a lot of different masters here, but really I think it's more interested in the satire than it is in the, the bigger question that it's asking um, about life in the digital age, which is sort of like, it's never, there's never been more temptation, but it's never been harder to cheat on somebody because of- yeah, there's a, there, there's a big sort of like scene where we are explaining the plot through another character and they're sort of like mocking it as this large climax scene because there's this really exaggerated camera move. It's like sweeping around them while they're like sitting at this bar. Yeah, it was like and half social network, but on a budget kind of moment. It was it's yeah, high tech. And I think. <laughs> I think it's really good, and it can, the satire connects a lot of ideas in that scene. And then after that, I don't think it's executing that plot as well anymore. It sort of turns back to what that means for the character. So the movie ends weirdly if you're really invested in what's going on. But I think it's much more satisfying as just yeah. like watching this guy deal with this situation. It doesn't really ask you to be overly involved in that stuff so you know it, it didn't feel like i had my uh that i was promised one thing and delivered another that my expectations weren't fulfilled i mean like i agree wholeheartedly with what dave just said about how the, the bit of a letdown at the end after some of the stuff comes out but it's also that, that is sort of secondary to what the movie is trying to do and the humor it's mining and the points it's trying to make about the industry and Everything else, um, even calling it the industry, I feel like is playing into the movie's hands. I mean, it's a movie about people who are always like just communicating in like we're excited and we're gonna do great things. It's like living in a pitch meeting uh, and everybody, never meeting everybody still wants to be Harvey and they just yeah. can't say it. Yeah, it, it <laughs> confronts the Harvey Weinstein's downfall head on. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's very specific in a in a fun way, and I, I still think if you're not tapped into the industry. Um, there's enough of like internet culture and the internet conversation. But the about thing with things, Jim Cummings, right, is that like he only it. with movies that are this cheap, he only needs the people who give a exactly. shit about all this stuff, exactly. who know what packaging is, to uh, to rent it, and he's and that's be okay. And that's kind of what I love about it. That it, yeah, it can be made for the budget where you can make it for a specific audience, not the four quadrant biggest audience. I just have the rock in my head now whenever i see i you know we just watched red notice some of us and maybe we'll talk about it on the podcast eventually mm. i guess it's coming out this friday but maybe we'll never talk about it but like there's a guy who's just trying to make the biggest movies and for everybody and it's like when you try to make movies for everybody 
uh, I don't know that you you say nothing, you can do nothing. You can. It's just the, the, the most rock inert not, movie. The the Rock's policy to making movies is to not risk a single potential vote in the future. Is sort of his entire mo. And Jim Cummings, uh, yeah, I mean, he's diametrically like opposed rebellious. That. He will chase rebellion. down individual viewers online if he has to. Um, and to engage with their opinions on it. the Bernie Sanders. That's the mode in which he operates. Of of (laughs) movie making. Well, and and so Dave, I I was thinking about you during the movie because you have produced independent film. I suppose David has uh, dabbled, but um, as someone who has made these kind of movies, I mean, movies that are made on a shoestring budget and are trying to make sure they don't like, I, I think independent film can kind of push itself over the edge. I'm sure we have all seen movies that play festivals where you're like, you're actually doing too much with the resources that you, the limited resources you have. Like, how do you make a movie with a camera that's not going to look like you're shooting Red Notice? It's you're going to look like a movie that you don't have a ton of lights and oh. you can only go to certain real locations. And I think this movie, for me, walked a line where it's like, wow, you're maximizing the resources. I'm never thinking of this as like, I'm never overthinking the budget or I'm never overthinking like, oh, you're shooting in someone's backyard right now or something. Like, it's really independent film. I want its finest, and I, maybe that comes through the script too, Jim. Well, kind I mean, of tailoring what, what, it to himself. But where do you think this is working, or does it not? I don't know. I, I've read some interviews with Jim Cummings, and how I understand is uh, how he works is he'll write the script, and then he essentially does a podcast version of the entire movie. Hmm. So he'll temp score it, he'll time it out, he'll do voices with any you know co-producers he has, or he'll just do them all himself. But it's basically his version of storyboarding because as a nature of independent film, sometimes locations can change. And so you could have an idea for like storyboarding. So what he really likes to get into is just sort of like the timing and the feel. And there are like montage moments uh, in this movie that definitely, I I think, edit together nicely because of like pre-planning of knowing how much time you're going to need on a certain shot, certainly during like the sex scenes and like having to have like an intimacy coordinator on set and uh, like schedule those sorts of days. So I think it's, yeah, it's a lot of pre-planning, but it's also things that could kind of take place anywhere and modeling a story where that is part of uh, the aspect of it. So the agency is so bland that you don't have to do a lot of set decoration the when he goes into the mystery things like literally get dark so you once again you don't have to like deal with too many places uh you could sort of like play with light or in this case the purple envelope is like a very bold theme color and set decorate really quickly and put lots of purple things on different different places i think there's a lot of things that you could learn from this movie if you're watching it into how to produce cleanly also uh, sure. red notice generally looks like shit so, oh my god you know yeah i mean the <laughs> problem with red notice is that it was entirely shot against a green screen a, yeah great i mean red red notice is I mean, we we really never have to talk about red notice because i think like the rest of the world uh we will, we will join them and never really talk about it never talk about it um that that movie was severely impacted by covid and that they did have plans to do a bond style uh shoot around the world and then ended up having to shoot the whole thing in atlanta which um is what you can tell like. you can tell yeah <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, the the benefit here for the beta test is they shot around LA. They got very realistic um, agencies and and restaurant locations, and it all kind of works. I think it's really down to the script. I think Jim Cummings can write for himself, and that is a huge asset. He gives himself all the meat to chew, 
Um, it's, and, it's a and really fun performance. Uh, PJ McCabe plays his best friend in the movie, oh, so right. they really keep it all in house. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, he 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 writes sex scenes and he shows his penis. So like you know, he puts I was it on the line. Good, he walks along. You know, if you're gonna have oh, like I... a movie that goes straight to VOD, flash your big penis. That's great for you. I don't that... remember seeing the dong. Gotta be honest. Oh, you gotta. It's in a pan down, real it quick. It is. It is. And it's a bit shadowy, but it's uh, the silhouette is fine. Maybe the link that they sent me to watch it on was. This is why you don't want to deal with buffering. You're gonna miss it. <laughs> You're gonna miss <laughs> the, the problem dong. with the streaming oh. age. Congrats, well, you'll have uh, And uh, with a name like that, you gotta have it. <laughs> All right, the beta test. It's out now. You can rent it, and you should. It's fun. It's it's fun. Jim Cummings is also the name of the person who voices Winnie the Pooh. What are you implying? <laughs> Winnie the also Pooh. Dong. Winnie the Pooh is hung like Eeyore. <laughs> oh, good God. lord. Let's go. Oh, Next. Let's go. Now in semi-limited release, I think maybe in more theaters than you might expect, is Spencer. It's the Kristen Stewart Princess Diana movie. Of all the movies that I am trying to see, you know, early in this Oscar season, and that's the one that I don't ever have to explain to people. They've heard of that one, which is nice. Um, Kristen Stewart plays Princess Diana. It's set over uh, three days at Sandringham, which is one of the royal family's uh, multiple country homes around Christmas, and she is unhappy because she's married to Prince Charles, and she never really was happy married to Prince Charles, but this is at a particularly miserable time. Uh, it's described in the very beginning as a fable, uh, so it's not really trying to be true to what happened to her in real life, but more of the mood of what was going on. And if you've seen Jackie, the movie that Pablo, made, Pablo Lorraine made with another famous actress as another famous person, you probably get the vibe. I am still like, I need to see Spencer again, honestly, before I feel like I'm going to have a definitive feeling about it, because covering the Royals for Vanity Fair for as long as I have. I have a lot of feelings about Princess Diana, and I don't know if I came into this movie fairly to think about what a movie should and what is an obvious thing to say about Princess Diana to me versus what it is to everybody else. Um, I do feel like it's not as much of an accomplishment as Jackie, partly for me, because I think it Diana is so famous and there are so many versions of this princess that we have talked about, and I'm not sure this one gets at something that feels different or feels like it tells a story within the story itself um but i'm really open to other people telling me i'm wrong because i feel like this movie should be tailor-made for me so who wants to tell me yeah, that i'm wrong I, that spencer is a masterpiece katie i'm i'm kind of with you in that jackie was one of my very favorite films from that year i know it was polarizing but uh whatever people i agree i i hmm. uh i mean there were people who like, really good. had their knives out for that and thought it was some kind of embarrassment and it felt a little cynical and who are those people me, but um, I I could name names, but I won't. But uh, that straight is straight dudes who aren't you guys. Not all straight dudes. Okay. Good. Yeah. Well, no. Uh, I mean, I you can take your essentialism, you can throw it under Camelot, Katie, because all the people against minds <laughs> are uh, <laughs> are not fall into that bucket. But um, the yeah, it's a movie I love dearly, and was very excited for this. It seemed extremely my shit, even before you added Johnny Greenwood and uh, Kristen Stewart to the the mix. And... What about Timothy Spall as a mean Aquarius? I mean, Aquarius. Uh, <laughs> I think actually, I don't know how you say it. A palace assistant, Timothy Small. I know that's up your alley. I, I, Katie, I'm trust. I'm assuming that you are right. I'd never heard that job title before, but uh, oh, I yeah, no. Again, too much royal knowledge. It's a being silly or just enough. Um, but the 
Yeah, I, I was all in on this movie, and I found it. I, I, well, I, re- I wanted to vibe with it on the sort of camp is too loaded a word to use, but the sort of knowingly winky pageantry of it all, the sort of like high, strung ghost story of sorts that is sort of leaning into the obviousness of Stephen Knight's script. Um, and it's the only kind of script Stephen Knight knows how to write. So, and this is uh, maybe the most of all Stephen Knight scripts. And um, the I just was so as beautiful as it is, as amazing as it sounds. Really, the cinematography by Claire Mathon, who shot Portrait of Lady on Fire, is uh, you know completely immersive. John Greenwood's score is as excellent as you would expect, um, and really sort of virtuosic. And I actually thought that Kristen Stewart's performance was immaculate. Um, she was sort of a Diana unto herself. I believed her as a movie version of Diana to the bone. I just was so put off by how obvious seeming the movie was. And maybe I'm speaking as someone who is by no means an expert on Princess Diana. Well, you watched The did Crown. Just watch, watch, yeah, I did just watch you know, the four seasons of The Crown. And it was like, you know, Diana's been a public figure in my life since I was, well, you know, almost since I was born. And um, I just felt like... There wasn't a lot of meat on the bone of the story of a woman who was trapped in a gilded cage. And the mm-hmm. haunted house element of it all that peaks with this Anne Boleyn subplot was interesting. The scarecrow stuff, the KFC ending choices are made, and I respect that. But I really. What are you saying? All these things that you're. Are, are these spoilery things? Or like none of this collage nah. that you're spitting out makes sense to me. I haven't seen this movie well, yet, but like KFC that's and Anne Boyd. Well, there, well, it's a that's called talking about the movie without giving anything away. But if you've uh, seen no, it, uh, you know I think what you I'm can right. say that Anne Boleyn opens a KFC franchise in this movie. Like that's yeah. just known no, to history. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happens, and, and that was the one scene that really took me by surprise. Yeah, I think I, I mean, we really are on the same page because. There is this, I think if you know anything about Princess Diana or if you're someone who wants to see a Princess Diana movie, you know that she was in the royal family and people, she wanted to be the people's princess, but they were mean to her and she and Charles didn't get along. And that's kind of the text and the subtext of this movie. And there is really interesting stuff in the way that it's put together and in the visuals like we're talking about, but none of them really go deeper than that, even in the places where you think it will. Like there's the ghost story element and then the fact that she's kind of trying to return to the her childhood home, which is on the grounds of Sandringham, which is kind of crazy. But, like, that didn't quite feel like a real thing. And in, in reality, like, she was not that nostalgic for her childhood. And I don't want to get so hung up on the truth that I, I don't think that's important to the movie. And I don't think it has to be true to history to be a good movie. But it didn't. It felt like an alternate history that didn't have all of the pieces in place. Well, I mean... Yeah, it doesn't need all the pieces because of what it's doing. I mean, it sets itself up from that title card that you mentioned as it gives itself permission to sort of unfold like a fable yeah. and adhere to that logic. But I think in order to do that, it needs to wedge into the history that we know and find something deeper, maybe even invent something that wasn't there so that we get a different conception of who this woman, not even necessarily the real Prince Diana, but a woman who is you know living her life and wearing her clothes um, and looks a yeah. lot like her may have what her headspace may have been like. And I just don't feel like there was a lot there that you couldn't surmise already from other media and just your basic assumptions. Uh, it doesn't mean it isn't pleasant enough to watch and beautiful to look at and listen to, but um, I, I just, that ending um, 
as much of a swing as it is, not that it's you know breaking the fourth wall or anything that dramatic, but just in terms of the the events, the little escape she gets, it's it. I just remember feeling a big weight of like that's it, that's all you got on this woman. Um, I don't know. I I'm all, I'm still I'm still a big fan of Pablo Lorraine's you know ongoing what's going to be it sounds like a trilogy of portraits of these women in guilty cages and I'm excited as everyone else is to figure out who the uh, third subject might be mercifully not Britney Spears but yeah, take uh, someone guess. else take but who do you do you have any ideas now I'm thinking what 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 connects I saw uh, someone suggest Anna Nicole Smith which no uh, but I would uh, I just uh, you think I a modern any... you think it'll be someone that modern it's hard to I mean imagine. the other ones have been pretty modern I just really Anna Nicole Smith I I just don't I'm not into it, but I uh, it did lead me down the road of thinking that Ryan Murphy needs to make a show. The only, maybe the only thing that would justify the Ryan Murphy phenomenon is if he made a show about Vin Diesel's feud with The Rock. Um, <laughs> Are they ever really making a second season of Feud? That seems yeah. He made a show. For that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Ryan Murphy's attentions vary wildly. Um, to end this mini segment. Uh, David, as someone who didn't have a child when Jackie came out, and presumably then your memories from that period are not shattered in a million pieces, do you can you get a handle on why Jackie, with a really similar pres- premise, worked better? I guess for both. I of think us? a lot of it boils down to the urgency of the situation, which is you know the, the high drama of all, which is the opposite of what's happening here. And Jackie, it takes place in the aftermath of the president of the United States and Jackie's husband's assassination, and rests on a choice that she has to make about how to honor him. And through that choice, which seems sort of arcane in the moment, becomes a, a really nuanced portrait of not only this woman, this impossible situation, grieving on a national scale, but um, in, in sort of interpolates all of these things about American myth and the idea of Camelot and what her place in history is going to be, what her husband's place in history is going to be. I mean, it's a lot going on. And this in, in Spencer uh, very pointedly takes place on sort of a nothing of a Christmas weekend. Uh, where really mm-hmm. the only thing waiting on the other side of it is if she's going to weigh three more pounds, because that's the the tradition that they do when you come in to make sure that you're enjoying yourself for the weekend. Um, and so it, we know that her life is, it's not in the movie, but it's going to come to an end at some point in the not too distant future, and that she is you know desperate to get out of this marriage, the institution, everything that comes with it. But the, the sort of Damocles isn't really hanging over her head in quite the same way. Um, it, she's really on this sort of her own mental trip that is motivated only by her surroundings and not by any sort of incidents. She feels watched, just run away, you know, but from the moment she rolls into the gas station in the beginning and she's like, like, could you tell me where I am or whatever it is? She said. I mean, it's like very, it's on the nose. Stephen Knight did not write Jackie. I'm hoping he doesn't write <laughs> the next one. Um, but I, I'm, I'm into this mode of filmmaking that Pablo Lorraine has discovered. Um, and I'm a huge fan of his film, Ima, which, I guess technically came out this year. Um, so, and he also made a Stephen King series that does not exist. But uh, yeah, I'm curious for the next one. This one just didn't really, it's that frustrating feeling, Katie, that I thought you were alluding to at the start of like seeing something that feels like it's so up your alley and being felt, mm-hmm. being left cold with it. Yep. But, but I would, I would suggest people see it anyway. Anyway, I'm not trying to talk anyone out of seeing it because it is for your own journey to experience. And before Elizabeth Debicki's Diana premieres, I think we all have to see this one first. This, this is the rule. You have to watch all the Dianas.
All right, guys, strap back in. It's time to go back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe for its 26th entry. Hey! This one has been divisive online thanks to Rotten Tomatoes. Rating this one as rotten. It's the first uh, Marvel thanks to Rotten Tomatoes rotten movie. I mean, critics reviewed it and made that number happen. Right, like yes, the critics. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes aggregate. You know, rot- patches. I don't know if you know how it works, but Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> sends us a score, and then uh, we have right. to mold our opinion. Write a review somewhere. Attack of the Killer there. Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. I see. Yeah. Lukewarm reviews for this movie led to it uh, opening like any other Marvel movie. So <laughs> keeping in mind uh, that uh, the unstoppable tent poles uh, are continuing at least uh, through uh, this year. Uh, we get Chloe Jaws Eternals. Uh, I'm gonna speed through, I guess, the premise of the movie, uh, just in case. It's 5000 BC. It's 5000 BC. <laughs> in the Opens beginning, with the title there crawl. was Salma yeah. Hayek. <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty good. Uh, there's an opening title crawl that explains that the Celestials sort of create life. And then they create these beings called the Eternals that they uh, send to Earth <laughs> to hunt down the deviants who are killing off intelligent life on Earth. So go send some superpowers. Not only that, but this god, Erishim, the, the celestial that uh, makes our particular group of Eternals, uh, is also like, if you want to, you know, occasionally help them along, fine, but don't get involved in their human conflicts. You're only there to like hunt deviants. So we're introduced to 10 Eternals, five who very slightly have powers that are more like thinker based and five that are more uh, battlers. And they're off to uh, you name fight them all without looking. the deviants. No, there's a little pop. Uh, quiz. Name Eternals them all pop Here we go. Yeah. Okay. So Ajac, mm-hmm. Cersei. Yeah. Sprite. Icarus. Druig, are you going to name I'm, the actors along with me? Oh, I can. Uh, we're doing well, it? nah. I named one. Tommy, Dibby, Dami, Jammy, Dami, Tammy, Tammy, and Brian. <laughs> uh, Phaistos, uh, Athena, and Marika. M- Makari. Oh, you skipped Makari. Uh, Kingo. You skipped Kingo. Kingo. How could you forget? I skipped Kingo. R.I.P. Kingo. I, I, a lot of Eternals. Wait, Kingo I, doesn't die? No, Katie, Katie it's a meme. Internet Come on, Mom. Meme. I, part of me is morbidly curious to know what that meme was about because I totally missed the ball on it, and part of me just knows that my I think brain it's about, would be that much less. I think it's just I fake spoilers. I think people were just having fun that there are ten Eternals, and if any of them die, saying "R.I.P. Kingo" is hilarious. It's that simple. Mm. <laughs> I hope. Anyway, surprise! In the timeline of Earth. Uh, they managed to kill off all the deviants around like the 1500s. And then instead of, you know, having anything to do, they sort of split up and wander the earth for 500 years. And we pick up and they've all been separated. We pick up with Gemma Chan's uh, Cersei and uh, Liam McHugh's Sprite, who are in London with Jon Snow and things seem fine until, oh my god, there's a deviant attack. And then Icarus, who is Richard Madden, shows up. And they have to get the band back together. Deviants are bad. And there are lots of flashbacks. So, 
things that this movie is interesting to me as Marvel Studios basically doing what a DC movie sort of does, which is sad gods. Uh, and I have a lot of problems with how the DCEU unfolded as a uh, series of movies about sad gods. Uh, a lot of them, I think the Eternals uh, tries to address those problems from like a story uh, dialogue uh, point. And even though it's like almost three hours long, it is overstuffed not only with like the characters, but it has a lot on its mind about sad gods. And because it's a Marvel movie, there's a lot of stuff that sort of smells like reshoots that are like, they all sit around a table and joke about the Avengers and Kingo gets a lot of lines. Um, so it, it's the usual. When Kingo's not on screen, everyone should be asking, where's Kingo? Where's Kingo? For some reason, uh, he does not I, show up in the final battle. That is very strange. I don't know how spoiled. Yeah, but... he says he doesn't want to. Doesn't want to. I know, but I'm just like, out. you don't want to participate. It's a Marvel movie. Get in there, Kingo. I, pew I pew. Mean, That's what makes it cool. That, That's that what feels makes like it cool. kind of a spoiler, but uh, that was one of my favorite. It is one of the weirder moments of the movie in its context. Like, I'm but I, done. it's a... also sort of epitomizes why I thought this movie was so much more interesting than the average Marvel movie. Yeah, there's a lot of weird moments that uh, don't necessarily feel like Marvel. They don't necessarily feel like a Chloe Zhao movie either because it's not like she's working with uh, inexperienced actors who are like playing a version of themselves. These are like sad gods that are so distant sometimes from human emotion. Sometimes because that plot is making them do that because they are trying to keep a secret that I think the movie is less interesting when it's not trying to keep it. It's more it's, interesting when it's not trying to keep it. It's also very unclear the level of secrecy in this in, from the very beginning where Kit Harrington's character is like, yeah, Sprite said you broke up with your boyfriend a century ago. It's like, aren't they supposed to be keeping this shit secret? Like, how hard are you That is a little confusing because they know of the Avengers exist and they know yeah. aliens exist, but then it's yeah. kind of hush-hush, but it does seem like everyone in Kingo's movies knows that the Eternals exist. <laughs> It's very hard to figure out. I mean, maybe she just didn't personally want him to know that she was an Eternal, that he he knows the existence of them, but that that would complicate their relationship. I mean, I think there's a lot of leftover things that are like, they could have been full ideas in the movie, but instead they're sort of nodded to. So like the idea, like, they can't keep a secret because they tell fucking stories about themselves, and that's why they reoccur throughout history. The other thing that really hurts the movie is they don't lean on the fact that the deviants are predators that consume and then evolve the, using the thing they consume, and that's what makes them dangerous. I thought they, they start... only started doing that yeah, that's a new recently thing. in the timeline of the thing, because they were like, they didn't used to be able to do that. Uh, no, but that, like when they're showing the ones from the past, all those deviants are shaped like predators from the area that we're seeing the battle in. What? So it's kind of like yeah, Beast Wars tra- Transformers, where they've scanned animals and they've turned into them. Is that exactly? They're trying to <laughs> imply that they're they're trying to imply that like the deviants of like you oh, know are evolving. I didn't get that, and that's I totally. That's, it sounded that's like the new what... deviant was juicing up, you know, and like he's on roids <laughs> well, now. It, he does juice up because there is something special about him. Again, part of the twist that I don't think the movie needs to hide or have because it's actually makes things more complicated to understand because there is this sort of like interesting idea that the thing that makes the deviants actually dangerous is their ability to evolve. Whereas we deal with these eternals who sit around for thousands of years and look the exact same. 
Yeah, and like as you get into the and we'll bring a spoiler spoiler gong at some point, I guess. Like the difference between the deviants and the Eternals in terms of how they were created and what they were intended to do, and the notions of free will, like that gets like hinted at at one point. There but are like big ideas the, in this movie. Yeah, but also the Deviants themselves, like, they just look like CGI gobbledygook. So every time, I would never have noticed them changing because every time they show up, I'm just like, whatever, big monster to fight in the woods. That was Uh, a a design mistake. They they look like Pandora rejects because they're going for the diaphanous (laughs) multicolor. I felt like they were going for kind of that Princess Mononoke demon, like... I wish. I, I mean, maybe monster the monster thing. More, but the purple. Blue I think they're going for all. a lot of things, but I think what would have been more useful is to do something that more centered on the aspect of the design that I just explained, because I think that's really cool and feeds into your movie. There's yeah. a whole bunch of things that feel like they should be feeding into the overall feeling of this movie, but I could see where it's sort of hit and miss for people. So, like the idea that they're distinctly not human and distinctly not celestial, there's something else. Like their ability to tap into like understandable human emotions, I think, is part of the movie that could make bad parts work to its advantage. Sort of like their boring parts of uh, Blade Runner sequel, but because the movie's about sort of like trying to form a human personality and Ryan Gosling, you could kind of forgive it. Like I, I, I feel like even the the missteps here sort of work to Eternals' uh, DNA which makes it feel interesting, which ultimately is what I want. <laughs> like, don't get me wrong. I love Shang-Chi and it is super fun and also ends in CGI goop, but it's a lot more fun and a lot more jokey and mm. a lot more marvelly. This is some depressed Eternals that stay depressed through most of the movie. And even the twist is, you know, sort of who's going to be more depressed about what. And it's, <laughs> to me, it's more successful than something like justice league because it doesn't yeah it doesn't have to go big with any of its uh superhero moments it's more about the these like it feels sort of like a you have to see your god family that you don't want to see because christmas is coming or you have to in this case stop uh event yeah, like I think this movie has too many ideas and has too big of a scope and it is too cosmic and, and it totally gets away from itself and, and can't kind of like bring all these giant feelings and notions and, and moral complexities, ethical questions together. But to compare it to something like Justice League, which, uh, you know, I'm not uh, the, the Snyder cut that was somehow also this year um, had some moments of just like of, of graphic Splendor, uh, I, I will give it that credit. It has no. Patches, uh, do you remember no where ideas. you were when you got the email that said that you had access to the Snyder Cut? That, that I had to do like inbox? multiple step authentication to get into my Skype. It was very. I had a miserable night trying. Does to that day not live cut. in in infamy in your in your memory. My point here is that this movie has ideas, at least. Like the the Justice League stuff is really void of any. It's not chasing anything. It's really just after spectacle. And I think Eternals is at least reaching for spectacle, interesting spectacle, variants of what we've seen in other Marvel movies. And it's trying to, like, chomp at something. I mean, the idea, can we talk about 
what ultimately this movie is coming down to? Can we talk? I feel like we need to talk can about, say, about the twist. Can I say it's one about, thing before we get to the twist in terms of... Well, we, I, I don't think we necessarily have to get into spoilers to talk about what it's about big picture. No, we need to get into spoilers. I, have, I, I mean, we, I mean we it's about making the ultimate ethical choice. It's about, it's about letting billions of people die or let billions of people be born. I mean, it is it's a, a huge, trolley problem. Yeah, it's impossible to make those I mean, decisions. Every, it's hugely it, cosmic. It is, like Patches was saying, it, it is a lot of familiar Marvel uh, ingredients, but scaled up to cosmic level. It is, as Katie just said, a trolley problem, although it's just a trolley problem with billions of lives at stake. I mean, all this entire MCU is built off trolley problems, and this is just a bigger and more modeled one. But I, I really enjoyed it as uh, for its outsized scope and for the fact that it's about people challenging their god um which i don't think gets into spoiler territory to say that like you know they have some disagreements there's some discord between the eternals themselves and also between some of the eternals and atrium or aquarium whatever the fuck the Arishem. whatever Arishem. um and they atrium yeah um and i retain that information for the like a couple hours it took me to write the review of the movie and then it was obviously gone forever from my head um but the yeah i mean i i think the idea of standing in the palm of god's hand and and questioning their uh order the way they do things um those are interesting questions and and scenarios and they play out here with a, a weight that is foreign to uh the marvel cinematic universe for the most part i think there are some major problems with this movie that are endemic to the mcu they fall into big superhero issues I mean, basically, like whenever characters are fighting, and it's just there's nothing less interesting that people have ever invented than watching CG people or like you know human people that have been I so know. heavily. Eye lasers are CG, pretty cool. They look good in this. Whatever, movie. fight against CG blobs. I mean, it's just like we built an entire generation of cinema off this. This is what movies are to some people. It's an atrocity. Uh, and Chloe Zhao, who like Chloe Zhao, who who claims that she was directing all the action sequences herself and that it wasn't just being run by some like second shadow unit of mcu i mean i i would not be making that claim if i were her because this looks just as generic and boring as every other fight scene um in the mcu but the stuff when they aren't fighting and when they're having these you know less be more foreboding yeah whatever these, these conversations no, when like you feel they're bo- actually boning boning they're, bo- oh, they're boning, boning when they're boning, boning yeah boning. there is i mean the fact that there like is a very chaste pg-13 three second sex scene in this movie does it prove it's like watching of, two manic- mannequins on top of each other being like you know it would, and it would be more meaningful strange. if that romance that's supposed to be central to the entire story i think that's like actually anything. the big law of the movie i yeah. think that is I the mean, big the problem main two characters are the least interesting internal and this movie is supposed just to be. Represent, don't you think it's supposed to be like a big, beliefs. like cloud Atlasian through time romance? Well, see, yeah, That's a, all but all the Eternals kind of all the Eternals kind of love each other in different ways, and they explore that, and they just picked like the boring combinations to be. They needed that key scene to the plot for some reason. They needed that scene from Rent where they're all under a um a sheet, kind a of sheet like touching sex. and fucking each other. That's what yeah, was because if you're term. around these people for millennia, aren't they all going to have sex with each other in various ways? Yeah, this is like yeah. forever. This, these, they're a bunch of theater kids. They 
they should be fucking each other and drinking. <laughs> I mean, maybe time. that was maybe that was the first instance of the missionary position in all of history. Maybe that's why it looks <laughs> oh, so man. awkward. Like, uh, like we don't know for there's sure. There's a great gay couple uh, in the movie, uh, and they have a sweet life. But where's the scene where they're backstage drinking peach schnapps and the boys kiss once? And you're like, Whoa. I feel like the missionary position was like one of the first that we invented. And when I, when then we went to more adventurous. Arishem, um, Arishem invented but, that. But actually. I think that um, the. Yeah, I mean, they just represent, those characters just represent different sides of an argument. It's very similar to Tony Stark and Iron Man, and they're the same fucking person, Tony Stark and <laughs> Captain America uh, in Civil War, um, although it's more interesting than that horrifically boring movie. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, like, that's interesting. I loved um, the the sense of fear and menace that I got from Barry Kyojin's Druid Every time he can control minds and it's a yeah. power that's that's ripe for misuse and seeing him over the years like navigate those waters and use it but in a way that was I don't know, maybe but not, not even, still it's so not ethical. even misuse. He doesn't really become diabolical. I mean, I don't know how spoiler this is, no, but, but he, like he uses it for uneth or ethical purposes. This is complicating the their position on Earth, right? It's, but the well, everything with this character the- is seeing someone who is obviously like so unempathetic towards i mean he professes to care about people and i believe that he does but like his power and his eternity it all seems to put him at odds from having empathy for for people as individuals and yet it feels like he's constantly fighting against the temptation to become the bad guy from jessica jones uh whatever his name was and um, david tennant Mm-hmm. Not the real guy. The purple man. And, <laughs> the purple man. Um, the and man. that was a really interesting and it had an element of danger to it that's been missing from a lot of the Marvel movies. Um, I think like even Kingo, his Bollywood number and his whole shtick, oh. I thought was fun. The decision that he makes in the third act, I thought was fascinating. It really goes against the grain for these movies. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff to like here. It's just when it becomes another Marvel movie rather than something that's sort of pivoting away from them that it fails. But the narrative around it as being this big flop um, creatively when it's simply trying to make very minor deviations from the mold is crazy to me because this is what we should be asking more of i mean this should really just be considered like it's not right. enough let them do crazy ass shit yeah. go ahead and do werewolf yeah, i mean you're about to get a third spider-man movie that's going to be the safest fucking thing in the world and it's just going to hit all the beats yeah. oh i just well, got ch- chatted spoiler pictures from that from joanna robinson and i'm oh so mad uh, i'm so mad at that movie katie and, what, did you spark yeah. any bit of Eternals? What, what is this yeah. movie working for you? What what did I was trying to jump in and because I was dissing the central romance with Gemma Chan and Richard <laughs> Madden, but I think that like this movie has a bunch of big fucking movie stars and they get to do a lot of like crazy and charismatic stuff. Like you've got Hasama Hayek leading this entire group of people. You've got Angelina Jolie in basically a supporting role, and then there's she's got this whole struggle where she's like. I don't know, captured by some whatever brain thing that's making her not work. And she's got this. Uh, it's called Mad Weary. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and then like Gilgamesh, who's played by an actor whose name I don't have offhand. Don Lee. Can tell me what it is. Don Lee. Um, and they have this like nice relationship between the two of them. Like there's just there's this power of performances in it. That when I think of something like Justice League, which also has a million uh, movie stars in it, like what what they're able to do in Eternals, like the characters even if the writing is like weird and how it resolves all their arc, these actors bring a lot to it. Like Barry Kogan or however you say his name and the girl who's super fast. 
um, who speaks in sign language, like they have this real spark and like you can feel that in the way that you can't with a German It's so weird how men, much honestly. chemistry those two have and then how much you love like Don Lee That's and Angelina Jolie. Pick... Like those two are yeah. a power couple. I Yeah. They pick the weirdest one to focus on. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, and uh, like it's something, probably something in the performances too because like they get all these like, you know, hands touching in sunlight, like a lot of sunsets in this movie. Uh, which and Sprite's whole thing is being like a repetitive. Frust- sexually frustrated. Yeah, I was crazy about no, I, Sprite. I didn't like character. her performance much. Yeah, you know me, I'm kid actors. Um, but yeah, there's just there's something about me like, yes, we have gathered all of these people and we're going to put them in crazy ass outfits and they're going to stand on a cliff. The Kamel's really great. Like obviously the like MCU comedy stuff in it can get wearying, but like I he looked great. He was funny. I actually like he his was, chauffeur or his, uh, the guy following yeah, him around. Yeah, the guy with his chauffeur yeah, is really funny. The, the human character. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. really fun. And then I love the scene later in the movie when they're going off to their big battle and he's like, hey, just from uh, all the people of Earth, thanks for trying or whatever. I'm like, yeah. that's really powerful. Yeah. That stuff's awesome. Yeah, there's 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 that stuff in there. I enjoyed the entire time I spent watching Eternals, which I did not expect. I was dreading you guys making me go see this because I thought. I mean, but also I hadn't seen a Marvel movie since Endgame. Like I had not. I didn't see wow. Spider Man Homecoming. Didn't see Black Widow. Haven't seen Shang Chi yet. And so it was kind of the first like, oh yeah, this is how they know how to make they know how to make this like big populist movie. The formula works even when it is as weirdly applied as it is in this and. I recognize it has a ton of huge story problems. And then when we get to the say, ending, the ending is bonkers. I feel like the caveat to this so whole conversation, I don't know if people feel this way, but like, I'm, it's been a few weeks since I've seen Eternals, and I feel like I've forgotten the bad parts. Like, I've forgotten most of the plot stuff that mm. just really clogs the works. I think by the third, by the time they stumble into Gilgamesh and Thena living in the desert of Australia or something, I, I, I went to the bathroom. I'm like, can they're about we, to have the exact we... same conversation again about, like, we need to get people together because of the deviants. Yeah. And I felt like the can plot we hit the stuff spoiler here is just at this point? so... Yeah, yeah sure. let's do spoilers. All right, so, Patches, for me, when listening to you say that, the image that comes to mind is that of the deviant mutant, whatever, like, sure. choking Angelina Jolie in a cave. And it's like, to a certain extent, uh, the deviants are, yeah, yeah, like the deviants (laughs) are meant to be a distraction. But at the same time, I was like, this movie at this moment is so completely misapprehending what I care about right now. Uh, Like, I, I'm so uninterested in the deviants after they've served their purpose um, to the narrative. And and the sooner they can dispatch with them, the better. And it's not soon enough. But when the fucking thing starts hatching out of the earth, that turns out to be a, a giant womb. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's, it's, it's some is it a giant the womb? Shit. I thought it was a head. Yeah, the thing. Oh, no, emer- the Earth emerging. is a womb. The Earth is a womb. Yeah. What we see it. What we see is a head yeah. and a yeah, head. Yeah, yeah. No, the Earth is a womb the whole time. It's crazy. Great it's idea. Being and then born. This giant colossus comes out of it. It's, it's cool. like the uh, the end of Moana. The yes, I, I thought about the same thing. Yeah, no, the uh, <laughs> the scene in the middle of the movie where we get to see that whole moment play out, the birth play out, is is fantastic it feels really big and this movie is weirdly lacking in that cosmic scope i think sometimes like i was thinking about dune a little bit after in the aftermath of eternals thinking about how big dune could get and with so little plot and like the little plot doing Mm. it a favor like plot kind of i don't know suffocates eternals a little bit it can't feel as big as i'd want it to but i think like aesthetically i can see your point but i was sold enough on this cosmic stakes 
and the idea that these creatures were birthed out of planets and needed, you know, seven trillion sentient life forms and their energy consumed in order to, like, I, and even just those introductory shots, um, which were like, you know, this could be too generous, but vaguely Kubrickian of them you know, coming to, to Earth, at least going for that sense of grandeur as opposed to the quick cutting uh, razzmatazz and so much Marvel stuff. Like, I, I felt the size of it all. Um, even if a lot of the shots moment to moment don't tell you on that because it's just two shots of disgusting CG looking garbage running at each other. But when the Titan comes out of the planet, I did feel like how enormous that guy was. And it felt like the kind of thing that would be on the news as it turns out to be about like this giant fucking thing coming out of the (laughs) earth. And I appreciated that. The thing in the finale that threw me is you get to where like they've they're gonna all unite the thing. Please use the proper term, being... Katie. We want to hear you say it. What do they it's do? N- oh no, it's not hive mind. They what achieve. The mind? They achieve the unimind. Web... Unimind. Um, unimind. And but Jim and Chance like she's summoning her power to do it herself, sort mm-hmm. of. And I'm not super clear. I'm, I know her power is to change matter, but what is she doing and how? <laughs> and that's all really unclear. And there's no reason for that. Like that's just a bad setup to get to the point where like. I get that the thing's coming out of the earth and they all have to unify, but well, it's weird. Is what complicates it is that in the middle of the movie, she levels up because she now has a connection to Arisham, and then yeah. it seems like she's she can turn a, a deviant into a tree. But with yeah. the Unimind plus Arisham, she can turn the big boy being born into rock. They're basically <laughs> just sinking their microphones, Katie. We do it before every episode. And, and But also, after that, they're like, we killed the Celestial. I was like, you did? I thought you froze it. I thought the whole point was just to freeze it. But I, it, it was unclear. She turned it into stone. It. She took a living thing and she turned it into stone. Oh, is that it got, what it, it got is? hobbit trolled. Mm. Uh, the other thing I want to say about the ending, before I just forget, is that at the end of the movie, Richard Madden, who's been paying the shitty ex-boyfriend this whole time, literally launches himself into the sun. A little too close. You gotta give a guy credit. God, I totally forgot yeah. about Getting that, but it is, it is definitely sick. <laughs> I, I think that's there was how a... every Marvel movie should end, with the least interesting character <laughs> launching just themselves flying into, into the, the sun. sun. <laughs> you go to the sun now. You you go to the sun this movie. I, ha- I have to say, I had a weird if thought Bucky, during the movie. If Bucky at the end of fucking Civil War or Winter Soldier was like, I have go to, to the go sun. now. I gotta go to the sun. Would launch <laughs> the the sun. I would have given that movie ten stars. I feel like the uh, visual effects artists are getting really good at making suns. Has anyone, is anyone else thinking about this during the movie? Is my mind? think about all the sunsets I just in this movie that like, they created in They're studio? really good at making the sun look like the sun and Earth look very photoreal. How do you think they do that? Is this just a joke about Chloe Shaw shooting outside? No, but I actually think that stuff works too. Like, there was a lot of jokes about this movie be, being Malikian in the in the Terrence Malick uh, mode, and I'm like, actually, shooting on a beach does plus this. Yeah, I mean, shit shooting up. in those like beautiful sandstone deserts is incredible because yeah. you have not seen that in a Marvel movie. I mean, before. had she cast all the Eternals with first time actors who she found on a ranch in Idaho or something, <laughs> then you know, we could talk. I'm but. still I'm still trying to get my mind around patches being like the exterior of the earth, the sun, two things I see all the time. How are they making it look so real? Like how do you know it looks real? You just <laughs> see, like that's how it looks. a photography of the sun. 
Oh, so have the people doing the CGI. I don't see like, the leap that you're trying looks, to make. There. Looks very real. The <laughs> They're getting really good at the sun. I guess by I guess by the point of Icarus flying into the sun, I was so like far out, man, of, of my mind of all the weird shit that was happening. Was well, like, even the sun is cool is. now. And then it, and then it's like and then the movie ends where God shows up and he's like, "Time to put you on trial." Oh, and it's like end of <laughs> the movie. end of this movie but is so dude, brutal. The Mortal Kombat like anything, stinger right? scene where Shao Kahn comes out of the sky and but doing it with Arishem, oh, just awful. It, awful. Dave, it's, it's, like, it's like anything when you see a movie that takes place in a fantasy world you've never been and part of your brain is like, yep, that looks exactly right. right. Like when, you know, uh, it's like an, an Ad Astra when he goes to the moon and sees the fucking Arby's on the moon. I'm like, yeah. wow, they really nailed <laughs> it. Like that's <laughs> just like the Arby's I eat on the moon. Like it's, <laughs> it's, there is a, a, a feeling when they sort of speak to something believable in your mind's eye um that works and all the cg junk in this movie of the the deviants and a lot of the action between the eternals you know hits that other switch where you're just like i don't believe any of this and i'm not interested in it but i agree with patches that when you see those sort of cosmic vistas that whether or not it's what the sun actually looks like it (laughs) it's what it should look like in a movie a lot of this movie looks like what it should look like in a movie is what i imagine arishan really looks like Katie, what were you going to say? I liked mm-hmm. all the, like, Babylon and uh, Aztecs yeah. and all of that. All... I mean, I thought about the old guard a lot, and I assume you guys thought about the old guard in this movie, too. Wow, like, I did the not, other movie but that's a good point. Yeah. Katie, I, I literally never think about the old guard. I not even really now, I'm not like the old guard. That was the last movie guard? that Katie saw, so that's the yeah, top yeah, of her exactly. mind. The old guard is the movie that does like I like people in love with each other for millennia actually well, mm, like yeah, that entire true. like monologue and and the, the the idea of getting tired of it and tired of protecting people and like traveling through history. Um, I, like there's parts of the old guard that aren't aren't as good as this, obviously. But I did think about it, in, especially in terms of like the feeling the weight of all of this among the characters. I don't think the eternal quite the eternals quite gets there. Do you think that I there's mean, a way where Kit Harrington had a better part? In this movie, I felt like we needed well, more complicated no, it's, romance. It's like, pure it, in, it's investment in his future. I mean, it's, it's just it, setting itself up. But he's casting the, he's, him in Richard Madden is psychotic. I cannot believe they did that. I mean, I think it's just for that moment where they you like are like, oh, she's just dating the B version of her old boyfriend. Like, I think that's the moment. But they like cast to him like for. reference. A- franchise that's separate just well so i mean yeah so okay well first of all black knight and cersei are the two that join the avengers so they're just like spoil them together and they're like <laughs> well i mean in the comics so who i don't know if it's going to happen in the in the movies or whatever but you could like select those two characters and then when they were casting it harrington was literally like finishing up season eight of game of thrones they're like night night nah yeah it's so not really about the, can we talk okay. about the um like spoilers for the post-credit scenes now someone's gonna explain them to me <laughs> Sure. Please. We they, oh, they we David and I did not see them because it's true. Oh, yeah. I still I still living in a world allowed. where Harry Styles yeah. is not Same. playing a dwarf in I have like, not what's seen he, Pip like a the space troll. Dwarf? What the fuck? No, no, there's a space dwarf with Harry Styles. He's he's normal height. He's a troll. Uh it, if Harry Styles is a good actor, I feel like the jury might still is he? be out on. Okay, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. That that scene is fine. He's obviously a very charismatic person. He's fine. Harry is real he creepy. He doesn't say much. Uh, great hair, obviously. Um, but yeah, I definitely had to, uh, the whole Kit Harrington thing, because obviously they leave it dangling that he's going to figure something out, but I was like, I don't know who that is. I think that's Mahershala Ali. That is, is Mahershala a, is, Ali. Does he have a blade because of Blade, or is that a separate thing? No, he has an ebony, ebony blade because he's the 
lineage of the Black Knight. He's, He's the a Black descendant Knight. of the Black Knight. Wait, so there's an ebony... There's an, there's ebony, an ebony blade, blade, which is an object, and then there is a black in, man named Blade. In fact, there is a joke. Character. There's a joke earlier in the movie where they're like picking up swords in their spaceship and being like, "Is this the Ebony Blade? No, that's Excalibur." Oh, and then Ebony Blade is that's what right. the Black Knight actually wields, and I think it's hilarious that there's a like pre-credits scene in this movie. It feel it doesn't have like a real ending. It has Kit Harrington running on screen, being like. I have to tell you about my past. I've learned something <laughs> about my history. And then a fucking alien literally grabs the characters and, re- and drags their asses to space. And that's the end. What a weird movie. It's, it's Marty McFly trying to warn Doc about the future. And yes. then they have to take it on the line. Very story. strong Back to the Future feeling. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess Kit Harrington as Black Knight is going to team up with Blade to Do they chop ha- vampires Do they have anything to do with each other? Is that a thing? I don't think they have, but... I have theories, but it's... Black Knight weird. has teamed up with, like, Doctor Strange, which I thought is where that, that was all going to go, but I think now he's going to be with Blade? Or they have Blades together? So there, there are rumors. Here are, is rumors and speculation Ooh. about the where we're going to see these characters next. David's favorite part. Buckle They're, up, David. Listen. Yeah, I got to go, They're, you guys. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> so there's, there's parts of the comics where the Ebony Blade has, like, a blood curse. So if you wield it, it gives you the Black Knight powers, but you need to, like, get blood, a la Blade. Plus, it sounds like there's a possibility that Ethan Hawke in the Moon Knight series might end up being Dracula. And that's where we all come Jesus back around Christ. to vampires. <laughs> okay, sure. So we're gonna go through vamp. We're probably gonna go through vampires before we get more Eternals. But I don't actually know. It's just the rest of them are on. And technically, Doctor Morbius exists in this universe, but not really because of contract. Mm. Well, uh, we'll see what happens no. when Morbius comes out. I'm not sure anyone's gonna be upset about that loss. No, Jared Leto. What do you think? Um, it- Harry Styles, Eros. Do you think there's an Eternals two in? this continuity that will happen or do you think Eternals people will all just be kicked to different franchises is this movie going over well enough I guess that's the real question is is Harry Styles showing up in Eternals too Dave yay or nay um I don't know I don't know right now off the top of my head if there is going to be an Eternals too. damn bleak I mean, it, it doesn't seem like anything in their movie side at this point that isn't already a sequel is built to have its own sequel. It's built to shove a whole bunch of characters off into space or whatnot. So, like, maybe we see some, maybe Harry Styles is in Thor Love and Thunder and gets to, you know, be across from Buff Natalie Portman. I don't, I don't know. Oh, I would it's watch possible. that. Um, do you think that Eternals exist to retcon, not even retcon, to... Um, make Galactus into a celestial so that he can appear in the Fantastic Four movie. And why is why are Katie's ears bleeding? This is weird. Why? Mm-hmm, no, <laughs> I, I need to remind myself though that like having liked Eternals, I need to know that like dumb like Marvel shit can be appealing to me in the right format. So it I gives you hope. Judging. Yeah. Well, Marvel's been wanting to do this for a while. They have a couple properties that are like big, cosmic, uh, but also like family like god level shit and they had to sacrifice the inhumans to television and a horrible one season of television but they were going to make that a movie and instead now they get to do eternals and i think they got there they have characters who are not avengers who are more powerful than avengers but also can't be bothered to care about people like this movie retroactively makes thanos a good guy 
he stopped all celestial births throughout the entire universe by snapping, right? Do they by, mention like, that? Cutting off. No, just in terms of the consequences in the Marvel universe, they they made the Marvel universe bigger, which was their one challenge to do hmm. after Endgame. And Shang Chi hinted at where they could go, but Eternals blows that box open. So now it's like, and now they've all the been multi- removed from the planet, so you don't have to worry about them. No, yeah, no one will the be like, "Where's the, the Eternals solving this problem?" We thought the multiverse was the big thing, but I think it's actually going to be this after your Spider-Man and your Doctor Strange. But like, this is like the the gods are in play. It's not just Kurt Russell anymore, who tried the exact same thing in Guardians of the Galaxy two. But don't worry about it. <laughs> hand wave, hand wave. Eternals, weird movie. Weird movie. Weird I movie. I think we're recommending it. Yeah. I okay. It's yeah. I think it's fun. If you like Marvel movies in the theater, go do it. But also, there's not going to be another Marvel release between here and when Eternals is on Disney Plus. So if you're a Disney Plus subscriber and don't want to go out and make this your thing, there's lots of other good movies in theaters. This is coming yeah, to Disney Plus be before the stupid Spider Man movie comes out. No, Spider Man's a Sony movie. It'll probably be oh. out on Christmas. This will probably come to the next. Wait, but Spider Man, Spider Man is in the MCU, but it's not going to yeah, be on this, Disney Plus. This one's this one's sort of not in the MCU. I mean, well, this is a topic for December. It's, it's definitely in the, in the MCU <laughs> in all ways, but name whatever. Okay, anyway, uh, yeah, Eternals. Eternals. Check it out. Not not as bad as uh, I was led to initially. Think. It's forever. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. We're talking about The Harder They Fall, which is on Netflix for everybody. You have a week to watch it. Catch up. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, deputy editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter, but don't go on there. It's a horrible place. It makes me feel bad. Um, you can just listen to our podcast. It's like Twitter, but you don't have to deal with it. What about what, fightingintheworm.com? <laughs> huh. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the CN uh, Chief Film Critic for IndieWire. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find me on IndieWire where I today posted a long piece of advocacy about Pig, one of my favorite movies of the year, Pig, by Nicolas Cage. If you haven't seen Pig, I assure you it is not what you think it is. I'm assuming that that's like some sort of John Wick riff with Nicolas Cage. Uh, you got to watch Pig. It's great. Um, you can find all of us on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Go on iTunes, leave us a review, read it on the show. It's great fun. But you should do. Let's go right. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. And that's, yeah, that's my promotional things at the moment. Uh, and I am Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair and on the Little Gold Men podcast where we're talking more about Spencer this week. Uh, and on uh, still watching impeachment, which wrapped up this week that Dave has been working with me on. It's a good show. More people should have watched it. Uh, subscribe, catch up. Oh wait, Katie, um, can I can I say one more thing just at the, the very end as we wrap up? Yes. It's time to take out the trash. <laughs> what are we talking? Is that about? from Gucci or something? <laughs> it's time to take out the trash. What? Is that from Gucci? I've not quoted? seen Gucci. It's time to take out the trash. Oh Jesus! Christ. Oh my God. He's just gonna keep doing it, is he?
on uh, on next week's uh, Fighting in the War Room. David will explain what he's talking about. It's time to take out the trash. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-T-H. We're also all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can explain David's joke or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Clifford the Big Red Dog, what's your favorite cinematic dog moment? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. It's time to take out the trash. I don't get it. Who do the shit that I don't?